afternoon, and welcome to Calvary's Way, a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. Calvary's Way, recorded live at Calvary Chapel, is a Bible study taught by Pastor Gib Allen. Today, in our continuing study of the book of Acts, we come to chapter 4, verse 1. Once again, as you get your Bibles, the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 1. Do you like to be shocked by a scene in a scary movie? I mean, just to be temporarily frightened? If you don't, you are in the minority. The majority love it because these kinds of movies are very popular. In fact, they are the most popular kinds of movies today. In fact, they always have been. Now, a little scare may be fun, but real fear is horrible and it can take over the human psyche. It is such a powerful force that it can control a person and taken to the extreme, it can even kill. The expression scared to death has come true for many people down through history. Some are totally immobilized by fear. I mean, to them, fear becomes a bondage. It's it's like a prison from which they find no escape. And of course, our society loves to categorize the fears that we have. Uh, Our society desires to make every human malady and problem a sickness of some kind, and so that we define these things in scientific terms. In this case, a fear becomes a phobia. Phobia is in vogue today to describe all sorts of fears that afflict people. And there are literally hundreds, if not thousands, of phobias. I guess it's so that you can keep a little list of them so that you can feel more scientific about the things that you're afraid of. Now, one phobia was made familiar to uh, all by Steven Spielberg in his movie by the same name, Arachnophobia, the fear of spiders. Then there is claustrophobia, the fear of enclosed places. Acrophobia is the fear of high places. Agoraphobia, the fear of open places. Anthropophobia is the fear of people. And there are all kinds of obscure phobias. Bacteriophobia, the fear of bacteria. Zoophobia, the fear of animals. Isopetrophobia, the fear of mirrors. I have never met anybody that had that fear before. (laughs) Orophobia, the fear of gold. Metaphobia, the fear of money. Telephonophobia, (laughs) the fear of telephones. Blenophobia, uh, the fear of slime. Uh, Musophobia, the fear of mice. Microphobia, the fear of small things. Neophobia, the fear of new things. Monophobia, the fear of one thing. And pantophobia, the fear of everything. There are still more. Scotophobia, the fear of darkness. Carcinophobia, the fear of cancer. Cardiophobia, the fear of a heart attack. Hydrophobophobia, the fear of rabies. Allegophobia, the fear of pain. Kinetophobia is the fear of motion. And tachophobia is the fear of speed. Autophobia is the fear of Corvettes. No, no. Autophobia is the fear of being alone. Hypegeophobia is the fear of responsibility. Cacoraphia is the fear of failure. Gametophobia, the fear of marriage. And even phobophobia, the fear of fear. But we're not through. There is 
Triskaidekaphobia, and that is the fear of the number 13. Okophobia is the fear of home. Thanatophobia is the fear of death. Orinophobia is the fear of heaven. Psygeophobia is the fear of hell. Bacotiphobia is the fear of sin. And ecclesiophobia is the fear of church. I mean, there are literally hundreds, if not thousands more, and the list grows every day. You see, we live in a fearful society, and many people are in bondage to it. We all have a tendency to fear. It is a weakness in the human race, and it can be a problem to us as we seek to live the Christian life, as we seek to follow Jesus and to serve him. You see, the enemy of Christianity is Satan, and he uses the process of developing fear to come against us to keep us from following Jesus and to living for him. This process is known as intimidation. To intimidate is defined as to make timid or fearful. To intimidate is to make you fearful. And intimidation is the strategy of Satan by which he seeks to control people. People in the world as well who do not know Christ seek to control Christians by intimidating them. As we attempt to live biblical Christianity, as we attempt to live the life that God would have us live in the secular world, we will come face to face with intimidation. And the real question is what we will do when we face intimidation. I mean, will we yield to that fear or will we find a way to overcome intimidation? The apostles faced the same question because they faced intimidation every day of their life. As they sought to share the gospel of Christ and to win the world to Jesus, they had to come to grips with the intimidation of the world. And in our text today, where we have come in our Acts adventure, we see that kind of a situation. Now, in our previous studies, we have looked together at Acts 1, where the promise of the Father was given by Jesus that the disciples would receive the power, that they would receive the power of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, they received that power. It was the power to become mighty witnesses for Christ. Thousands of people were saved that day as the power of God was unleashed. Then in Acts chapter 3, we read the story of Peter and John, who went up to the temple to pray at the hour of prayer. And they found there at the gate beautiful a cripple, a man who had been lame all of his life, who asked them for some money. But Peter said to him in Acts 3 and verse 6, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And immediately strength came into this man's ankles and his to his legs, and, and he began to leap and jump and shout and praise God. And this drew a crowd of people. And Peter seized the occasion and began to preach to them in the name of Jesus, saying that it was by the power of Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, that this man was made whole. And he gave a great message and had a tremendous effect. But in the middle of it, he was interrupted. Now we pick up that story now as it is given to us by Luke, the author of the book of Acts, in the fourth chapter, beginning with verse 1. Follow along as I read the first four verses. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, 
and the number of men came to about 5,000. So first of all, as they were speaking, it says in verse 1, the priests, all of the male descendants of Aaron were priests. In that time, the time of Christ and the time following here, there were over 20,000 priests. And since there was only one temple located in Jerusalem, the priests were divided into groups. There were 24 groups, and each group served in the temple one week, twice a year. And so the priests here are one of those groups that had been assigned to the temple for that particular week. And then it says not only the priest came, but the captain of the temple. Now, the temple was huge. It was vast. And they had a police force, as it were. They, they wouldn't call it that. That's what we would call it. They were a type of temple priest, and he was the captain of the temple police. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. Now, the Sadducees arose during the interbiblical period between Malachi and Matthew, a period of about 400 years. They arose with the other parties of that day, that is, the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Zealots. The Sadducees, however, were the ruling aristocracy. The government of the Jewish state under the conquering Roman Empire was in the hands of the Sadducees. The high priest was their leader, and all of his family belonged to the noble aristocracy. Every facet of Jewish government and economy was under their control, under their direction. They were the rulers of the people, and they would do anything to maintain that position. It didn't matter what was happening. They would do anything not to lose that position of power and wealth. A good illustration of their maintaining that position is found in John chapter 11, right after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. The high priest said this. The high priest was a Sadducee. Verse 47, this is what he said. He says, what shall we do? For this man, he's speaking of Jesus, for this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and the nation. So they didn't ever want that to happen. Wherever the Sadducees appear in history, in the Jewish state, they are always bargaining, compromising, welcoming, and supporting the alien conquerors in order to keep themselves rich and affluent and in the leadership of the nation. The Sadducees were rationalists, materialists. Their interests were entirely earthly and in this world. They did not believe in a spirit world, in angels, or in the immortality of the soul. They believed that the soul died when the person died. They did not believe in heaven. They did not believe in hell. They did not believe in retribution. They did not believe in rewards, good or evil. And they certainly did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. Nor did they believe in the sovereignty of God or in the hand of God in human life or human affairs. They believed that all things were mortal in our hands and that God had absolutely nothing to do with it. You could call them practical atheists or practical infidels. And we have no record, either in history or in the Bible, of any Sadducees ever embracing the Christian faith. In AD 70, when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by Titus, the Sadducees were obliterated when the nation was carried into captivity by the Romans. And the Sadducees ceased to exist. And Pharisaical Talmudic Judaism is what we know today. 
So verse 1 says, Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And, and so the captain, together with the priests and Sadducees, they all came together now to arrest Peter and John. Now, that was really a strong reaction, wasn't it? I mean, these guys weren't proclaiming the overthrow of the Roman government. I mean, you could expect that kind of a reaction if that's what they were doing. But they weren't. I mean, they weren't advocating the violent overthrow of the establishment, nor were they protesting some of the social evils of the day. I mean, there's not a word of protest raised against the widespread practice of slavery throughout the empire. Half the Roman Empire at that time were slaves. Every other person was a slave. But nothing is being said about that. And there's nothing said about the, the burdens of excessive taxation which the Romans had placed upon the people. There's no such protest. The message which was so threatening that the Sadducees couldn't tolerate was the proclamation of Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. That greatly disturbed them because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And if other people began to believe in Jesus, then their place and position would be threatened. And so for this, Peter and John were thrown into jail before they could even finish their message. Verse 3 says, And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. When Peter and John came into the temple, if you recall, back in chapter 3, it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And now after they had healed the lame man and after talking to the people on Solomon's porch, now being arrested, it is now sunset. They put them in custody until the next day because it was illegal under Jewish law to have a trial by night, even though that is exactly what the Jewish rulers did to Jesus. I want to read you a quote from the Mishnah. Sanhedrin 4.1, I quote, Judgments about money may be commenced in the day and concluded in the night, but judgments about life must be begun in the day and concluded in the day. So it is illegal for them to have any kind of proceedings like this at nighttime. Verse 3 says, And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. 5,000 men in that great crowd in Jerusalem became believers in Jesus Christ. Amazing. But you know how it started? It started with only one man, just one. You see, Peter took the time to reach out to one single lame man, and 5,000 people got saved. We can get lost in large numbers sometimes, but the reality is that salvation always happens one person at a time. So don't get confused and caught up into thinking that you have to reach hundreds of people for Christ. It is more likely that God has just one person at a time. Maybe God has a person right now that he's put on your heart. And it starts by you reaching out to them, taking them by the hand and saying, as Peter said to the lame man, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. And the number of men came to about 5,000. You see, despite the opposition coming against the gospel, the number of Christians keep increasing. Opposition was not slowing the church down at all. Now, in the Western world, Christians rarely face persecution. Satan, instead, has attacked us with worldliness, 
selfish pride, and a need for acceptance and status. The martyr can always impress unbelievers with his courage and faith, whereas the self-centered, compromising Christian is always despised by the world. Verse 5, And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes. Now the term rulers, elders, and scribes means the Sanhedrin. It was the ruling body, both the governing council and the Supreme Court of the Jews. You could not go any higher than this. It was the Sanhedrin. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. You can see how seriously the authorities took all this by Luke's careful listing of those who were present. There was Annas, who was the honorary high priest and the father of Caiaphas. Then there was Caiaphas, who was the official high priest. And with them were gathered two of his brothers, John and Alexander, all in the same family. This confirms what we know from secular history, that this family of the high priest intermarried with one another and constituted a ruling class in Jerusalem, controlling the vast wealth of the temple and certain profitable monopolies connected with the sacrifices. So here was the class that sat in power and authority in the city and had great vested interests politically and economically throughout the city. And they were disturbed because they sense a threat to their position and their place and their power. Verse 7, it says, And when they sent them in the midst, there were 71 members of the Sanhedrin, and they always sat in a half circle. And in the center of them stood the high priest who presided over the Sanhedrin. Now, these Jewish rulers are the same ones who had condemned Jesus to death. And Peter and John, standing before the Jewish rulers, must have thought that the trial of Jesus was going to happen all over again and that they would be crucified just like their master. But it didn't deter them. Now, the Sanhedrin was so disturbed that without realizing what they were doing, they gave Peter a wide open door for testimony such as he had never had before. They asked him, by what power or by what name have you done this? Now, the ideas behind by what power and by what name are virtually the same. In their thinking, the power resided in the name because the name represented the character of the person. So they say, by what power or by what name have you done this? Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. The source of Peter's answer came from being filled with the Holy Spirit. If you recall, Jesus had said to these men, Matthew 10, verses 19 and 20, listen to what Jesus said. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. The source of Peter's answer came from being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now look how bold Peter is. In verse 8, he begins, rulers of the people and elders of Israel. If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel 
that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. Now the tone of Peter's reply, especially when he says, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, shows that he's not intimidated by these people. No phobia is here. I mean, he is not fearful. He's not intimidated by this Supreme Court. Though humanly speaking, he should have been, right? I mean, he should be intimidated by the same court that sent Jesus to crucifixion. What a contrast with that cringing disciple who was afraid of a little maid in the high priest's courtyard just a few weeks earlier. When she asked if he were a part of the band of the Galilean disciples of Jesus, he denied it. He said he never knew the man. He said, I never knew him. Three times he denied it, but now there is a great difference. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, the life of Jesus is being imparted to him by the Holy Spirit, and this is what the Holy Spirit does. When he comes into a human heart, his business is to take the risen Lord's life and to give it to you, and to empower you, and to encourage you, and to strengthen you, and to do whatever you need have done to make you adequate, and to cope with whatever situation is going on. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. So Peter, filled with the Spirit, is bold here, you see? Bold as a lion, and the flow of his language was unstoppable. The council was dumbfounded and amazed. Peter's word of testimony was like thunder. Peter did two things. First, he pointed to Jesus. He said, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Second, he pointed to the man who had been healed. By him, this man stands here before you whole. The formerly lame man was right there with them. He was exhibit A of the power and the authority of the name of Jesus Christ. Now, to drive the point home, Peter quotes from Psalm 118 and verse 12. Listen to it in verse 11. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Now what Peter and the psalmist are referring to is the occasion of the building of Solomon's temple. There is a Jewish tradition that says that during the building of the temple, a great rock was quarried out and shaped by the stonemason down in the stone quarry and sent up to the temple mount, but the builders couldn't find any place for it. It didn't seem to fit in any of the blueprints that they were working from, and so they left it on the side, and it sat there for months. Well, it was in their way, so finally someone pushed it over the edge, and it rolled down into the valley of the Kidron and was lost in the bushes. Now, when the time came to put in the cornerstone, that great square rock that holds everything in place, they sent word for the cornerstone to be sent up. Well, the chief stonemason sent back word that it had already been sent up a long time ago. And so they looked all over for it. No one could find it. And finally, someone remembered that great rock that had been pushed over the edge. So down they went into the valley of the Kidron, and they found it in the bushes. And with great effort, they raised it again, and they brought it to the top, and they fit it in its place, and it fit perfectly. The cornerstone of the temple and thus Peter now makes application saying, the chief cornerstone is Jesus Christ. You rejected him when he came. You had the chance to build your life on the rock which God had ordained, but you rejected it. You crucified him. 
but God has raised him from the dead nevertheless and has made him the head of the corner. Then he adds these amazing words in verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now that is heresy in the Jewish language. That is heresy to them. To them, there was salvation through the sacrifices that they were offering. And of course, today with them, there is salvation through the good works that they do. But Peter boldly proclaims the truth. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Listen, no other name, not Mary, not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Confucius, not Mahatma Gandhi, not Ramakrishna, not Joseph Smith, not Mary Baker Eddy, or whoever or whatever. You see, we can never consent to considering any other name to be equal with that name, Jesus of Nazareth. No one other, I mean no other, has solved the problem of death. No other has broken through this ghastly terror that hangs over the human race. Only Jesus of Nazareth. God has made him the head of the corner, and there is no other name by which we can be saved. Now, many believe that all are saved, and that there are many roads that lead to heaven, and that you can take the best of all faiths and blend them all together into one. But those who believe that, unfortunately, will bear the consequences of their belief. You see, this is not the teaching of God. That is not the teaching of the Bible. The teaching of the Bible is, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And now we see two misconceptions that they had regarding Peter and John. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. They perceived but their perception was wrong. They perceived that these men were uneducated and untrained. Now, they did not have degrees, they were right. I mean, they didn't have degrees from the Hebrew University, but they were far from uneducated and untrained. They had had three years private tutoring by the greatest master who had ever lived. Far from being uneducated and untrained, they were probably the most scholarly in that whole group. They knew the scriptures so well. They had such a vast understanding and comprehension of the word of God. Well, that was their first misconception. And it reminds us that God uses ordinary people. I mean, do you ever feel like maybe you're not special enough to be used by God? Maybe you've got it backwards. God wants to use ordinary people so the world will see that it is not us but it is God's work. We hope you have enjoyed today's edition of Calvary's Way with Gib Allen. Thanks again for listening, and we do hope you will join us again tomorrow as Pastor Gib teaches and we learn to walk Calvary's Way.